Welcome to Through the Ringer. I am still your host, Tate Frazier, and we got a jam-packed show today. We got John Jastrzemski to come on to talk about the MLB. But first and foremost, we got to talk about the Draymond Stop game with our very own Kevin O'Connor, KOC. Thanks for coming on the show, and let's try to make sense of this. What is going on in Sacramento between these Kings and these Warriors? <laughs> I mean, Draymond uh, gave us one hell of a show uh, in that fourth quarter there, stomping on DeMontis Sabonis, man. I mean, look, it, Draymond there in that moment, Tate, you got to stay composed. Sabonis instigates in that moment, but you got Steph going up the floor, chance to continue to to build back in that game to try to close the lead. In that moment, you you can't be doing that. And now the question will be, after getting a flagrant two, you get Sabonis getting x-rays, will he actually get a suspension here? That That's the question on my mind. Yeah, this is a uh, a series that in game one provided the best game of the weekend, right? When we opened up the playoffs, everyone's excited. It's been a chess match to say the least. Steve Kerr talked about the physicality, right? The first quarter of this game, we both had, had both teams with nine turnovers. Uh, I was a little bit sloppy, but that goes back to that physicality. And then that physicality leads to this moment late in the fourth quarter with about seven minutes to go where Draymond Green, DeMontis Sabonis, like you said, he grabs Draymond's ankle, right? We have to point that out. And then Draymond, reacts with a stomp of sorts. I would say this is the Christian Leitner, the patented stomp by Christian Leitner that he did to Kentucky back in the day. Um, so tip of the cap there to Christian Leitner. But Draymond reacts, he stomps, he then goes to the bench, he's antagonizing the crowd. Sabonis is writhing on the ground. Um, this is just, this was a WWE scene, Kevin. I feel like I should have David Shoemaker on to try to break down what happened here. But <laughs> but what are, what are the implications, right? Because Draymond could be suspended and they're already down 2-0 for the first time in Steph Curry's playoff career. Well, I mean, for the Warriors, you're 33 and, at, and 8 on the at home this entire season. So you've been a dominant team winning 80% of your games at home. So if you don't have Draymond, obviously that's a hit to you. you because in this series, DeMontis Sabonis, you look at the numbers on the surface, he has 24 points. He's 8 of 12 from the floor. But... With Looney before the foul trouble, with Draymond before the ejection, Sabonis wasn't, you know, necessarily super effective. They were defending him well when he was on offense. They're still scoring on him at the rim. Draymond is an integral part of that as a playmaker. And you look at the Kings and the Warriors right now, if they are without Draymond, which like we don't know yet, but the Kings are attacking in so many different ways, whether it's Malik Monk with that first half flurry he had sharing the floor with Alex Len, or whether it's Kevin Herter coming off of screens, you know, pulling up for mid-range, Fox, early offense transition, or the Sabonis DHOs. The Kings have a ton of ways where they're generating offense. The Warriors, it's, it's Draymond doing what he usually do, does. It's Steph and... That's pretty much it. I think for Golden State here, if you're losing Draymond, it's just going to further increase the pressure on Stephen Curry. When at this point, I feel like in the series, they should just be spamming pick and rolls over and over with Steph. That's what's been working best, whether it's pick and roll or isolations. They need to get more out of Stephen Curry somewhere. And the pressure's on already with or without Draymond. Yeah, and it's one of those things where if you're watching the series, it just looks like the Warriors are having to make tough shots. And obviously, when you have the Splash Brothers, 
Oilers, you expect them to make tough shots, but not not all game long, right? And, and one of those guys that is up in Steph Curry's grill is national champ, former national champion for the Baylor Bears, Davion Mitchell, in his Ooh. second year. A lot of people call him off night, Kevin O'Connor. He was amazing <laughs> in this game. What did you see from him? <laughs> I mean, I, I interviewed Tyrese Halliburton from the Pacers, his former teammate, at the beginning of the season. I asked him, who's the best defender you've, ever, you've ever gone against and he said without like missing a beat Davion Mitchell mm. and, and we saw why tonight because with Mitchell whether it's the on-ball point of attack pressure on Stephen Curry or when Steph would give up the ball Mitchell would be stuck to Steph's hip like glue tracking him as he did all his relocations off ball trying to spring free, free. Mitchell was one of the reasons why the Kings defense was really effective overall at, at muting a lot of those Warriors actions that have worked so well over the years he was I mean, you know, he hit the big three, the dagger. He was absolutely sensational and speaks to, again, the depth the Kings have with the amount of options they have off their bench. You get Len in the first half, plays eight strong minutes, doesn't even play in the second half. Mike, Mike Brown, he pulled all the right cards in the game tonight, most notably with Mitchell. That was awesome. Yeah, and there's a lot of familiarity, right, between these two teams. Mike Brown was with the Warriors last year on their run to a championship, so he knows this team well. Uh, you got Barbosa, right, a guy who played in the first iteration of this Warriors group that's on the bench as a coach. You got Delhi over there, who obviously chased Steph Curry around and almost died, as J.R. Smith told us, right? So there, there's a lot of guys that are on that Kings bench that know this Warriors group. Is there any sort of, you know, I, I know the Kings don't want to get too far ahead of themselves, even though they've lit the beam twice now. But is there any sort of like comfort in knowing that you understand this Warriors group that you're going against, even though you're about to go on the road? And, and as we've seen, the Warriors are really good at home at the Chase Center. Well, I think that's part of it. I mean, with the Kings here, what Mike Brown did is he he took like so many of so many of the actions that the Warriors did for years and he just copy and pasted it to, you know, the Kevin Herter, you know, coming off a of screen action, split action, Sabonis DHOs, and he combined that with what you see, you know, Sabonis had done with the Pacers or you see Jokic do with the Nuggets, you know, playing fast with Fox. It's like this blend of Warriors style with other modernized stuff you see so the kings all year long their defense has gone against the king's offense playing this way and they've played it themselves so i think there's an understanding of what the warriors are going to do because kevin herter's relocations is the is the steph curry relocation you know you know coming clay thompson coming off the screen sabonis knows how to help off of that and pressure him to get get rid of the opportunity of clay catching you know off the screen so for the kings there it's obviously going to be tougher on the road against the Warriors in that environment, but they're a prepared team and they've played this way. And that does give them an edge, you know, versus Golden State, whereas other teams, you know, the Warriors are so unique compared to the way every other team plays, except for the Kings. Yeah, which is, you know, there's that word goes back to that connection between these two teams, which is mm -hmm. very fascinating. Um, one of the players that we have to talk about, obviously, is De'Aaron Fox. And, you know, they showed the graphic tonight, his clutch points, right? I call it crunch time, Kevin. I'm an old school guy, but apparently it's clutch time now. He leads the league <laughs> in clutch time points. He seems to be closing out all of these games. And he seems to be doing it with a certain kind of moxie confidence. What have you seen from Fox and what do you like from Fox in this series so far? I mean, he is just an absolute sensational player, man. And he had, you know, before one of the big shots he hit, he had the big box out on defense as well. Right. He, he, he has just turned himself into, I mean, you know what him and Monk were like at Kentucky. They're, you know, up and down the floor. They're fast. They're fun. They're athletic. 
but Fox is still all of those things, but he's developed his, you know, decision-making his shot selection. He's improved as a pull-up shooter. Now one of the more effective mid-range shooters in all of the league, you know, he draws a ton of fouls at this point of his career. He's just become a more complete basketball player. And look, man, like I had, I had Fox fifth on my MVP ballot. Like it was a really tough choice for that fifth spot, but with the Aaron Fox, I, I think he's the engine of this team. Uh, he's the guy at, at the top of their defense. He's the guy who runs their offense and is the scorer in the most important moments of the game. And we saw that again tonight with the big shots that he hit and the big plays he made on defense. And we saw the, the respect from Steve Kerr, who put Andrew Wiggins, their best defender, on Fox, right, and said we need his athleticism to match up with Fox, which, again, Fox is a point guard, Wiggins is a wing, so that says enough about Fox's athleticism right there. I did want to ask you before I let you go, what's one thing that the Warriors can do at home to help even the series back up? I mean, is it Wiggins coming to life? Is it Jordan Poole coming to life defensively or offensively or in some capacity at all? I, I mean, I, Jordan Poole, I have no help for him. Um, he, I, he's not a good basketball player, and at this point he's <laughs> getting benched in the second half for good reason. Uh, mm. I, I think it comes down to Stephen Curry. You have him at 20 shots in game one, 21 shots in game two. That's going to be closer to 30. You got to find a way to get him going. You got to run your offense through him like the megastar that he is and ride him because you're not getting those opportunities from others on, on their team, especially if you're without Draymond Green. But even with Draymond, he can only serve as an enhancer for Stephen Curry. So they, they got to get him going on the higher, highest volume, perhaps, that we've ever seen from him in the postseason. Yeah, my favorite stat, Kevin O'Connor, I'm letting you know this, FGAs, field goal attempts. That's why I respected Kobe Bryant most ever in history, 50 field goal attempts. You know, we need that kind of performance from Curry. Goes back to Chase Center, put up the shots, do all you can. What else can you lose at this point? Well, there you go. Thanks so much, KOC. Thank you. All right, now I am honored to be joined by the Ringer's very own John Jastrzemski. He does a lot for the Ringer, also has a FanDuel TV show here himself, East Coast Bias, which airs on Wednesdays, um, which is a great show. We're enjoying that. But today he's going to come on to talk about America's pastime baseball. It's all happening, John. Thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Tape, my pleasure. I'm happy to be aboard. Let's rock and roll, man. There's a lot cooking. I mean, listen, New York right now, is like the perfect hotbed because I think for the first time since 1994, we got the Knicks, the Rangers, the Islanders, the Devils, the Nets, all in the playoffs, plus Yankees and Mets are two teams that could go win the World Series this year. So good time to be a New Yorker. It's nice being able to say that for a change. Yeah, it's good when New York sports are doing well, right? You guys are so downtrodden, and uh, nobody talks about you guys ever. So it's it's about time that we focus in on New York. I'm kidding, of course. It, it is great, and especially uh, on the diamond in the world of baseball. We'll talk about the Mets here in a little bit, but I want to start with you know the, the the Bronx Bombers, right? We always want to talk about the Yankees. Everyone's fascinated with this Yankees team. They're talking about Aaron Judge, obviously, and what he can do in this year. But I want to start with Giancarlo Stanton, another injury that comes out, and obviously that. It's been a conversation since he came over after winning 2017 uh, NL MVP. What is the word on the street when it comes to Stanton and how are Yankees fans putting up with another injury? Is it okay? Cause it's this early into the season. Yeah, I, I think it is Tate from two standpoints. Number one, it's super early in the season. Number two, the idea now that baseball has expanded their postseason, it doesn't put nearly as much emphasis 
on going and winning your division. I know the Houston Astros won the division, had the best record in the American League last year, and went to a World Series. That may be true, but you also had a situation where the Philadelphia Phillies won 84-85 games, looked awful for good chunks of the regular season, got hot at the right time, and took that all the way to a National League pennant. I just think, though, Tate, it's more frustration from a Yankee fan's perspective because Giancarlo State, when he first came to the team, there were super lofty expectations. It's the idea of having, like, this Bash Brothers Part 2 with Aaron Judge and what he can provide. And when he's right, dude, he is incredible. I mean, he hit one of the furthest home runs I've ever seen opening weekend against the San Francisco Giants. The guy is built like an Adonis, and yet he breaks down year after year after year. So I don't know what it is. Maybe it's got to be more yoga. Maybe he's got to do some (laughs) Pilates or bands or whatever the case may be. The routine is just not working for Giancarlo Stanton. Productive when he plays, but when you're missing 40% of the games the Yankees have played since you've come to the team, that's an enormous problem. And I know that Stanton kind of has become like the poster boy, right? With the, maybe these are the issues that are happening with the Yankees, but the bullpen and the rotation, or is that the real thing that you're focusing on with guys like Carlos Rodon and Severino, right? Is that the real story trying to get that pitching right? Because I know Garrett Cole is looking great right now early. Yeah, listen, their rotation is going to be fine. You mentioned two guys right there. Carlos Rodon, they paid a ton of money to in the offseason. He's got a little edge to him. I think he's going to pitch really well in New York. He hasn't thrown a pitch yet this year. Mm-hmm. Luis Severino, he's another one of these guys, super talented. When he is able to do his thing, he performs at a very high level. He's another guy that can't stay on the field. But the Yankees are getting bailed out by two guys. You named one of them, Garrett Cole. And he's one of those big ticket items, lofty expectations, got shelled in the playoffs two years ago against the Boston Red Sox. So a lot of Yankee fans were down on Cole last year. He gave up a lot of home runs. But Tate, you know this in New York. You judged on what you do in the month of October, and Cole last year dominated for the Yankees. They wouldn't have gotten past Cleveland without his brilliance, and so far this year, he has been unbelievable. He hasn't given up a homer. He's 4-0. I feel good about my wager I made right after the Super Bowl in Arizona. I had a couple of bucks in my FanDuel account. I said, let's go put it on Garrett Cole and win the American League Cy Young Award. Uh, I'm feeling really good about that bet. The other guy that's pitching great for the Yankees is Nesta Cortez. And a year ago, everybody's like, oh, is it a fluke? This guy comes out of nowhere. He's getting cut by like five different teams. No, no, no. I'll say it one more time for everybody. America, Nesta Cortez, with all the funk, with all the flair, with the leg kick score, <laughs> he's the real deal. Rotation, they're fine. I know I'm dancing around that question a little bit, but I wanted to give those two guys some love. Of course. The bullpen and who's closing games for the Yankees, that to me is an issue that's going to be very problematic. And I don't know if their closer is on the roster. I don't trust Clay Holmes. He's been awful since the second half of last year. I think when we talk about the trade deadline a couple of months from now, Yankees be in the market for a reliever, not a starter. There you go. But speaking of starters, let's talk about the other team in New York. And that is the, you know, the big conversation, right? Max Scherzer, who has come there and is supposed to be the guy in the postseason that steps up for the Mets. They go and get Justin Verlander, give him a bag. But when you look at it, John, you, you got a 38-year-old and a 40-year-old. Uh, Verlander has not seen the field yet. When you look at the Mets, is there concern there? Or should we just be patiently waiting for these guys that we obviously know have the name recognition? Are they going to be prepared for when we make a run for October for this Mets team? 
I have concern with Max Scherzer, and he's mm-hmm. going to be pitching Wednesday against the Los Angeles Dodgers, but his start to the season has not been particularly good. Fastball velocity is just not what it's been, and he hasn't been going as deep in the ball games. and the fear is with Scherzer and Verlander, for that matter. You nailed it, Tate. Father Time is undefeated. The Mets are relying on two future first ballot Hall of Famers. I mean, Justin Verlander last year was incredible and won the Cy Young. And I know if you look at Max Scherzer's regular season numbers, they were outstanding. Verlander pitched poorly in the postseason for the Astros. Scherzer, the last two years, he couldn't make it through the postseason. When he was in L.A. two years ago, the Braves absolutely roughed him up. And then last year, he's getting booed off the mound at City Field when Manny Machado and Trent Grisham are hitting bombs in the wild card series. Yeah, that's a major concern of mine. And listen, the Mets let go of Jacob DeGrom. He didn't want to be in New York. They go and pivot and get Justin Verlander. But they need those two aging superstar pitchers to be at their very best. Because if they're not, Tate, I I don't see how they get through the National League with Atlanta, who is loaded, San Diego, who is loaded. The Cardinals are always in the mix. I don't even love the Dodgers this year, but they're still the Dodgers. And I wouldn't be surprised if they go and make a big trade because that's what they seem to do year after year after year. The Mets need those two guys at the top of their game. No question. Yeah, you're right. And I keep coming back to that Padres series, like you mentioned from last October. That's still like etched in my brain when I think about Scherzer. So I'm still trying to get over that um, and get there with the Mets and their expectations because, you know, they, they feel like they're do something. And like you said, they have the headliners that are supposed to be there in October, but we'll see what, what happens there. I want to talk about the big story in baseball. Everyone's talking about the rule changes. There, there's kind of two sides of the coin here. I've seen some people say it's amazing. It sped up the game. It's fun to go to games because you get in and out. Now there's there's actually an understanding of the time that's going to be invested in that experience. Then I've heard some other people say, this is baseball. This is supposed to be a leisure activity of sorts. We're supposed to be hanging at the ballpark. We're supposed to be having fun. We're supposed to have some gamesmanship there. What is your first read on the rule changes? We're about a month into the season. What have you seen and what have you liked so far? Tate, let me preface this by saying I'm an old soul. I grew mm-hmm. up playing baseball. I love the game. It's like my first love. That said, I don't like, I absolutely love and adore the new rule changes that you have. And I was at Yankee Stadium on Friday night. The pace of play is just amazing. What they have done here is they've cut out the dead weight. Guys stepping in and out of the box, pitchers stepping on and off the mound. I mean, you go back to last year, there is no reason a nine-inning regular season or postseason game should be going four hours and 15 minutes and four hours and 20 minutes. It's completely unacceptable. And I've given this commissioner a lot of grief at times. He nailed it when it comes to the pitch clock. I'm a huge fan. You know what else I love? The throwover rule. And now you have a lot more stolen bases involved in this game where guys are stealing. You can't throw over 10 zillion times. It's one of the more exciting plays in the sport. You're seeing a lot more of it. Getting rid of the shift. Another big win. So, Yeah, I I get the complaint where, you know, you want to go to a Friday night game or, you know, you want to spend a couple hours at the ballpark. You're looking up and you're there for two hours and you're saying, what in the world happened? That may be true, but I think the pros clearly in this case outweigh the cons without question. 
Yeah, and there's one, uh, I thought this was a fun wrinkle when it comes to the rule changes where maybe there's a blind spot here, but Cody Bellinger the other night was back in Los Angeles. He gets a standing ovation and, and the crowd's trying to give him, pay their homage to a guy that helped them win a World Series, right? But then he gets a pitch clock violation because the crowd, the ovation lasted so long. His agent was up in arms about it. Do you think we're going to see more red tape when it comes to this? Because there seems like there's still some kinks to be worked out with the pitch clock. You know, that's an interesting point. And yeah, and that's sort of interesting. Instance, I mean, let Cody Bellinger have his moment, for goodness sakes. That's right. where we're getting a little above and beyond. <laughs> and, you know, Tate, I almost equate it to what you see in, like, the end of a basketball game where, quote-unquote, you're going to actually call the foul in that spot or you're going to say, all right, because of the situation, because of the circumstance, we're going to kind of let it go. Right. They didn't let it go, by the way, in Creighton and San Diego State, but uh, I might be bitter <laughs> with my 40-1 to Creighton ticket there. Uh, I, I do think we'll see some of that, though. Long story short, yes, I expect that to be the case. Yeah, there you go. Um, I wanted to ask you this before we get two more questions for you. One, what is the biggest surprise so far of the season? We've seen a lot of injuries, right? A lot of teams trying to figure out what their roster looks like. Guys getting pulled up, right? And this usually leads to opportunities. I remember, you know, Cody Bellinger is a good example of that. There was an injury. He gets pulled up and then he's like the NL rookie of the year. But is there any big surprise so far in the season for you? It's a good question. Uh, I'm going to say the Milwaukee Brewers and the start mm. they're off to. And I, the reason I say that is because I bet them as an under at the beginning of the year. Yet Corbin Burns complaining about his contract. I'm thinking, all right, this is going to be the year the Brewers kind of fall off the map. They end up trading away guys at the deadline. Woodruff, Burns. I mean, these are big pitchers that could make a world of difference for somebody's team. And, and now I look, the Brewers are off to as hot a start as anybody in the National League Central, I, I thought maybe you wanted the Rays to be the answer. The Rays are a really good team. I, I'm surprised with how hot they have been. But, Tate, I've seen it for years. They they love playing the Yankees. They're not intimidated by the Yankees. They're a team that's had success. They were, what, in the World Series a couple of years ago? So I, I'm not going to give you Tampa as a surprise. I'll say the Milwaukee Brewers. <laughs> Uh, before we let you go, John, I have to ask you this. Um, you know, everybody wants to know what the best value is when they look at the World Series, especially this early in the season, right? You might be able to get some value. So our friends at FanDuel Sportsbook, they have the Braves and the Dodgers at plus 650, followed by the Astros at plus 700, the Yankees at plus 900, and the Padres at plus 1,000. What, what do you see? Is there any value, and is there any team that you think is the favorite to go and win it in October? Wow. Um, those I odds know tell early. you. I know. I know. Well, it's no, early, you know yeah. what? Though those odds tell you right there, Tate. The odds makers think baseball is wide open, mm -hmm. and I would agree with them on that. I think the Braves have an outstanding team. I like the Padres as well. I, I would say one of those two teams will come out of the National League. I think if you're looking for value, value in the American League. I know they've pitched terribly. I think Toronto is a live team. I also think the Seattle Mariners and the Texas Rangers. Could be live teams. Seattle's got all those young studs. Kellenick is finally delivering. He was the big prospect. They got Fred Edwin Diaz and Robbie Cano, and all the Mets fans were up in arms. They traded him. It's taken him forever to get going, but he's finally starting to hit. And Texas, listen, they got the old school, old soul Bruce Bochy with uh, Jacob DeGrom and Nathan Avaldi. And I know Seeger's going to miss a couple weeks, but I expect Texas to be in the playoffs. So, I would say Texas, Seattle, and Toronto are all in that long shot category that I would like monitor.
I like that Seattle pick. I also think that, you know, Seager, that hamstring, that always, you know, gives me a little cause for concern. I wish he was healthy. If he was healthy, I'd probably be even higher on uh, the Rangers there. But, uh, yeah, I like those long shot, pick, long shot picks. Um, he is John Jastrzemski. Thanks so much for joining us. Where can we find all your amazing work for TheRinger.com? We don't stop, Tate Frazier. <laughs> we have New York, New York, and we're going to be very busy with all the basketball, the hockey, and the baseball going on every Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday nights. And let's be honest, they really drop Monday, Wednesday, Friday because we're creatures of the night here at New York, New York. And then you could find us on FanDuel TV with Joe House, Raheem Palmer, East Coast Bias, Gambling Pod, Tuesdays, Fridays, Ringer, and on Wednesdays on FanDuel TV. All right, there you have it. Thanks, JJ. Appreciate you coming on the show, man. You got it, dude.